It's not the heat, it's the humidity. And the crushing darkness. And the cocktail of digestive enzymes slowly breaking you down into your component parts. Welcome to the Crypto Naturalist. listening friends it's full disclosure time there is a snake whose venom lends the mind compulsive rhyme i should i guess have waited more to begin this episode but i'm just so full of nature lore i thought i might explode i suppose it's time to pause the show and give myself some time to lick my wounds here in the studio and escape the grip of rhyme the verse snake is an irksome beast to delay my schedule so, but I guess at least I'm not deceased, inconvenienced though. I'll pause and then metabolize this venom in my veins. I hope that you will empathize with my convalescent aims. Shouldn't be more than an hour or two, which, thanks to editing, will pass in mere moments for you, and we'll return to welcoming. All right, well, that did the trick. Time heals all wounds, as the woefully inaccurate saying goes. Ah, the verse snake. Who hasn't played that beloved childhood game of coaxing a verse snake's bite and then rap-battling your friends in the schoolyard? As wholesome as catching fireflies or listening to the whispered secrets of Prophecy Clover. I must confide in you listeners, I made a rookie mistake. I left my boots next to my parachutes, and, well, obviously I was just asking for a verse snake to come a-calling. The little rascal was curled up in my favorite footwear. Anywho, let's see. Where was I before I was interrupted by a whimsical neurotoxin? As you can probably guess, verse snakes are a little too pedestrian to be the topic of this show. Cassandra and I are on a long haul this week, winding our way around the globe in search of a destination that finds you before you find it, and it does so in its own sweet time. So, there's nothing better on a long road trip than telling stories, and I've got a yarn to spin that's one part cautionary tale and one part profile of a rare and dangerous cryptid that roams the wilds on all twelve of Earth's continents. Truth be told, this is mostly my old friend Russell Van Atta's story, but he's given me all the details and his blessing to tell it. See, when Ridgeway Shoes and Boots shut down its manufacturing plant near Parkersburg, West Virginia, Russell's long fight against retirement came to a definitive and unceremonious end. He had worked at that plant for nearly 45 years. His father had worked there since it opened in 1932, right up until the day he keeled over at the stitching machine. Russell had long planned to follow his father's example, but management had other ideas. He bore the change to his plans with the quiet stoicism of a wet cat. He wasn't in the least surprised to find that having a surplus of free time was just as awful as he'd imagined. 
his tidy two-bedroom ranch tucked down in a boggy valley hugging the Ohio River a few miles outside town had always seemed a welcoming, restful place after a day of work. But now the silence and seclusion conspired with his endless idleness to make the place feel like solitary confinement. He had no children or close friends, and each time tires crunched past on the little gravel road, he felt a pang of jealousy. Those folks, he thought, had some place to be. One morning in June, after less than a month of retired life, Russell shook his head and announced, I need a hobby. He'd been avoiding the H word, and it stuck in his throat. Hobbies were for people with nothing useful to do. He stood at the kitchen sink, looking down at his oatmeal bowl, the lone dish drying in the rack, and tried to think what other people did with leisure time. He had enjoyed reading the paper and drinking coffee before work, but that wasn't a hobby. He had a habit of watching the evening news, but... He couldn't stand much more television than that. His father had never had anything you'd call a hobby either. Eh, nothing except one thing. Russell walked to the hall and pulled down the folding stairs that led up to the cramped little attic. He climbed the narrow steps and returned a moment later, carrying a dusty black case. His father's old Martin mandolin. He even found a yellowed old songbook full of bluegrass standards. He'd almost forgotten that he owned it. He hadn't laid eyes on the thing since his father died. When he was younger, his father had taught him how to play. He'd bring out an old guitar and strum rhythm as Russell picked out the melody on his mandolin. Russell Sr. would tell his son stories of impromptu back porch concerts from a time when everybody knew their neighbors. The way his father told it, Russell imagined that anybody within a 10-mile radius was practically family, and hardly a night passed without a party or a dance or some other excuse to get together and celebrate something. Now, Russell had never seen any of these things in person, mind you. They belonged to a legendary past. But that past suddenly seemed more appealing than it ever had before. He opened the case and picked up the old mandolin. It was the color of scuffed leather, but with a glossy finish and an ebony fretboard. To his own surprise, Russell found that with the help of a pitch pipe that was stowed in the case, he managed to get the mandolin in tune quicker than he would have thought possible. He was also shocked to find the memory of the song Old Joe Clark still haunting his fingers. It may have been a bit clumsy, but the bright sound filled up the little house, and Russell found himself smiling so hard it hurt. Days passed, and Russell's fingers got faster and more confident. The repetition of practice felt wholesome and familiar. Before long, his work-hardened fingertips stamped down the pairs of strings without any real strain or soreness. The old songbook helped to fill in the gaps in his memory, and after a few weeks, he could play every song in the book like a natural. Russell took to playing out on the back porch. He'd serenade the dark woods and imagine neighbors' footsteps coming through the trees to join him. He thought maybe, just maybe, some kindred spirit would hear him playing and think of it as an open invitation, just like in the old days. Every once in a while, he'd even stop to listen for a song and answer, the twang of a banjo or the whine of a fiddle. 
But he never heard anything but the endless creaking drone of innumerable insects out on the marshy wetlands leading west toward the river. Long months went by and Russell started to be afraid. and began to worry that the shine was dulling on his newfound passion for music and he hated the idea that his solitude and idleness would creep in and steal away the joy of playing so soon after he'd rediscovered it. He began sitting out back long into the night, and playing so hard he half feared to snap in a string. He was nearly breaking his fingers, pounding out a high-tempo version of whiskey before breakfast late on an August night, with the last hopes of his fantasies of musical kinship fading away when he saw the light coming through the trees. Flashlight, he said aloud, his pick missing the string and leaving the last note ringing out over the din of the bugs and frogs. He jumped to his feet and almost screamed a welcome at the visitor, but he thought better of it. In his customary fantasy, his visitor just seamlessly joined in on a song and took a seat on the porch just as if he'd been expected. So... As the little bluish point of light bobbed closer, Russell planted himself back in his chair and racked his brain for what to play. Something classic, he thought. He started in on a basic version of Cripple Creek at what he thought was an approachable tempo and tried to control his excitement. But the little light was almost to the edge of the woods. Russell expected his guest to emerge from the tree line but the light stopped in the deep shadows just outside the yellow gleam cast by the porch light. Russell halted his playing and eyed the light. It didn't seem to throw much of a beam. One of those pocket LED lights, he thought. He frowned toward the visitor and tried to think of what to say. Come on up here, called Russell. I won't shoot you. He grimaced. It sounded a lot friendlier in his head. I mean, I got an extra chair up here. You play? There was no answer. Russell slowly came to his feet and walked to the edge of his back porch, straining to see the visitor, but he couldn't make out anything but the little light. As he came forward, the light receded a few paces back toward the dark marsh. Well, hold on now, Russell said. You came all this way. Why don't you stay a bit? He struggled for something to say. I'm Russell, he added, feeling increasingly awkward. An odd, electric desperation started to buzz through his limbs. He had to make a connection. He had to do something to stop the endless sameness that was constantly threatening to overtake him. He took a step forward, and the light seemed to take a step backward. You want me to come with you? he asked. We don't have to play here. He wasn't certain, but he thought the little light bobbed up and down as if in agreement. All right, then, let me just grab my case. He had a wild fear that the light would disappear and the moment would end. The fear surprised him. He stuffed the mandolin into its case and snapped it shut. He whirled back toward the light, and when he saw that it hadn't moved, he took it for final confirmation that he should follow. Russell walked in a steady beeline toward the light. It moved away to the northwest, matching his speed. Soon he found himself trudging through the deep leaf litter in the general direction of the marsh and the river. 
He had taken two spider webs in the face before he learned to keep one hand raised to intercept him. So he walked along trying to keep an eye on the light, swaying a hand at eye level like he was conducting a phantom orchestra. He couldn't recall anybody living in that direction, but until recently, he'd never really taken a particular interest in his neighbors or the geography of the place. He imagined that there were any number of footpaths down along the river, and he figured that they were making for one of them. After all, his visitor had gotten there somehow. When the ground started to get soft, Russell began to wonder if his guide might have lost his way in the dark. But he couldn't think of any way to ask without seeming rude or outright insulting. He'd always had a bit of a tough time making friends, and he figured silence was probably the best policy in this case. A crunch of leaf litter underfoot changed to a slosh and a splash. But Russell walked on, watching the little light bob on ahead of him. Something about it seemed strange, but he shrugged off the feeling. There wasn't much about the last few months that wasn't out of the ordinary. Ordinary was work at the factory. He shot a glance over his shoulder, but he couldn't make out any sign of his porch light. Nothing but vague tree shapes and the almost physical sensation of the buzzsaw drone of the insects that hemmed them in all around. All that thrumming noise and empty darkness threatened to add vertigo to Russell's growing list of discomforts, but he gritted his teeth against the feeling and forced one splashing foot in front of another. As he turned his attention back toward the light, he realized two things. First, that whoever was holding the light must have been walking backward all this time or he would have blocked the glow with his own body. And second, that despite the terrain, the only footsteps he could hear were his own. These two thoughts came with a cold, slippery feeling that started somewhere just beneath his stomach and spread out toward his extremities, loosening joints and tendons. He took another automatic step forward and found that the land had given up on bearing his weight. His forward leg sank up to the calf, and the shift in balance sent him sprawling forward. The mandolin flew out into the darkness. Russell tried to push himself up from the wet muck, but there was nothing to push against. He moved to stand to get himself upright, but the motion did nothing but sink both of his legs up to the knees. There was an acrid stink like rotten eggs. He made a move to throw himself backwards toward the last firm land he had felt, but the mud held firm, and when he stilled, he noticed that the water had reached his chest. He forced himself to stop thrashing and think. The cold water rose inch by inch as he sank into the swamp. Hating to be still, terrified to move, Russell could do nothing but listen to the insects and feel the cool pressure of the mud drinking him downward while he watched the little bluish light hovering above its own reflection in the black water. It began to shake violently, but it didn't move a muscle. He thought about screaming for help, but no noise came out. When the water was just above his collarbone, he noticed that the light was bobbing nearer. He stared at it with wide eyes as the water reached his chin. A shape came into focus. 
It was a small, bent-looking thing, shining like wet rubber. It was delicate, doll-like, and its outstretched arm seemed to terminate in a ball of radiance. Behind it, in a horizontal hourglass shape, there was a sheen of iridescence like dragonfly wings, but impossibly silent. Its horrible two-human face and milky white eyes were set in a look of profound sadness. Transfixed, Russell hardly noticed when the water rose to his open mouth. He sputtered and tried to cough. As if in reaction, the thing convulsed in midair and then soundlessly vanished into a wisp of vapor. There was nothing left but darkness and the taste of stagnant water. The incessant insect chatter bled into the frantic staccato of Russell's heart pounding in his ears as it sank beneath the surface. As you might expect, Russell was certain that he was a goner, but he was wrong. A hand reached down and grabbed Russ by the collar and hauled him up out of the muck to find himself nose-to-nose with your humble storyteller. I waited till he had rubbed the mud from his eyes and gotten his bearings. Then I looked him dead in the eye and said, Look upon me, mortal, and account for your sins. It was supposed to be a little icebreaker to lighten his mood, but he didn't find it funny. I helped him recover his mandolin and got him back to terra firma. And we've been friends ever since. We have ourselves jam sessions over Skype from time to time. But he insists that I don't talk about my work. He says he finds it disturbing. Which frankly puzzles me to no end, but there's no accounting for taste. Russell had encountered a classic specimen of what us crypto-naturalists call a will-o'-the-wisp. See, I like visitors as much as the next fella, but there's something to be said for knowing them before they arrive, and even more to be said for not following a strange light off the path into the darkness. And still more to be said for texting instead of calling. Come on, people. Anyway, until next time, remember, we're all strange creatures. So, act like it. The Crypto Naturalist is written and read by Jared Anderson. To send questions, poems, or short prose pieces for the Hidden Lore segment, email cryptonaturalistpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Banish Misfortune, played by Andrew Collins. For more information about Andrew's music, visit andrewcollinstrio.com. Stay curious, stay wild, stay weird.